Well, I hold in my hand right here an interesting book by Thomas Jefferson, third U.S. president, writer of the Declaration of Independence. The book is entitled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, or commonly called the Jefferson Bible. Ever heard of that before? Good. Learn something today. That's good. This book is the result of Jefferson systematically going through the four Gospels and cutting away every supernatural element. So, no prophecy, deity of Christ, angels, or miracles. What you are left with is the life and morals of Jesus arranged in chronological fashion. Jefferson believed in God. He was what people call a deist. But he rejected the Christian claim that Jesus was God who performed miracles. And some, Jefferson wanted Jesus' morals, but not his miracles. Now, what is striking about Jefferson's Bible is how small it is. You can probably see up here. There's not much to it. The Gospel of John, for example, is radically different. The Orthodox Gospel of John is 862 verses. Jefferson's is 152. Over half of the chapters have been removed. And the chapter that we're looking at here today, John 9, goes from 41 verses to 3. Jefferson offers a completely different vision of Jesus. He rejects the miracles, but the miracles are essential to knowing Jesus. You cannot know Jesus and not know His miracles. And you cannot know His miracles and not know Jesus. And I would also add that the morals of Jesus that Jefferson so dearly loved are based on Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God. And His morals have power precisely because of Jesus' identity, right? And how do we know His identity? Well, it's because of His miracles, or what John likes to call them, His signs. Toward the very end of the book, John says, as we've read before, John 20, 20 to 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. By believing in these signs, you will know the identity of Christ. Do you see how these signs matter? They point to the identity of Jesus and they give us a foundation to have His morals in place. They give you your cake and you can eat it too. So let me invite you to turn to John chapter 9 this morning, where, yes, we're going to look at all of these verses and see the amazing miracle that Jesus performed. But then we're also going to explore how Jesus takes this sign and uses it as really a stepping stone to an even greater truth that he wants to communicate to us. Now, while you're turning there, 
We are in the midst of a series in the Gospel of John, and I am focusing first on the seven signs of Jesus that John describes. A sign is a miracle, right? But John chose the word sign because it points to a greater reality outside of the miracle itself. John, excuse me, Jesus performed more than seven signs. We know that, but John chose the number seven because the number seven symbolizes completeness and fullness. In other words, these seven signs, properly understood and processed, will help you to see the true identity of Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. Thus far, we've looked at five signs. Last week, remember, we looked at Jesus walking on the water. And that sign was essential because now the disciples, finally, finally they got it. That Jesus wasn't just the Messiah, but He was also God in human flesh. And they confessed that and worshipped Him as such. By the way, several people after church came up to me and had a comment that I had made a comment that Jesus walked on the water, that He was the only one who walked on water, is what I said. But what about old Peter, right? Yes. Yes. I was aware that Peter walked on the water. I was aware of that fact, but, and he did technically walk on the water, but let me just throw this one out there for you. Who was right there with him? And do you think Peter ever did that by himself? No. So he did technically, I give you your point, you're right, you're right, but it was Jesus who did all that. So everybody there, John 9, As I said, we're going to cover the whole chapter. Sorry about those lunch plans. (laughs) I am torpedoing those things today. Just kidding. We're going to move pretty briskly through the chapter, but it might be a little bit longer than usual. Before I read, just a little context. The scene occurs in Jerusalem, um, outside probably one of the southern gates. It's likely around the fall or winter 32 A.D. is what scholars would say, about six months or so before the cross. Okay, just so you can kind of have an idea. There are three parts to our passage. The first part is that Jesus gives sight to, excuse me, Jesus gives the blind man sight. Jesus gives the blind man sight. And that's the first 12 verses. Let's read those together. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Shalom, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not 
No. So the scene opens with Jesus and his disciples walking past this man who had been blind from birth. He sat there as a beggar since it was common for blind people to beg in that day and age. We're not told his age, but perhaps he went out and begged during the day and then he stayed with his parents at night. In verse 2, the disciples asked whether this man sinned or whether it was his parents. This line of reasoning should sound familiar to you guys because it's what we discussed when we covered the book of Job this summer. Remember that? Remember when we talked about that? Job's friends used that line of thinking repeatedly. They believe that suffering is always proportionate to sin. Suffering is always proportionate to sin. As we discussed then, though, sometimes that is the case. But as Job clearly taught, Suffering is not always proportionate to sin. Sometimes people sin and they get away with it, at least on an earthly level. Not at final judgment, but at least on an earthly level, people can sin and get away with it. And then sometimes people suffer and there's no apparent sin that was causing this. And that should uh, bring to mind what happened with Job, right? That was the whole point of Job. And as we see here with this blind man, and Jesus says in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the man's blindness was not because of his sin or his parents' sin, but to display the works of God. Jesus goes on to say that he's the light of the world and that now he must carry out that work because it is about to turn night. And I think Jesus is referring to his death there by saying it's about to turn night. Notice how he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So then next, Jesus carries out one of those works that he was sent here to do. He heals the blind man. Now, as far as the healing itself, Jesus' method is pretty interesting. Did you guys catch that? How he, he spits in the ground, he makes it into mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, he goes out to this pool, and he's washed, and then he can see. People have wondered, was there any kind of symbolic significance to Jesus' actions there? Because, you know, sometimes his, his, his miracles, they do have symbolic significance. In this case, it's really hard to know. My best suggestion, if there is significance, might tie back to Genesis 2-7, where, of course, God made Adam from the what? From the dirt out of the ground. So perhaps, perhaps... Jesus might be taking that dirt and, in a sense, symbolically remaking this man's eyes so that he can now see. But again, not dogmatic about it, just a possibility. When his neighbors see the blind man, as we, as we read there, some recognize him that he was healed, while others say it looks like someone like him. But the blind man, he keeps saying, look, I'm the man. I was the one who was healed. And so when they ask him how Jesus did it, The blind man just relates the story. Then they ask him where Jesus was. And the blind man says, look, I don't know. And if you stop thinking about it, that's probably not the person to ask for directions. A guy who's been blind his whole life. It's not really the guy you want to ask for directions, okay? He's like, I don't know. Never seen any of this stuff before. So he doesn't know where Jesus goes. But at this point in the story, the story takes a sharp turn. Jesus leaves the scene. Then the religious leaders take center stage. The religious leaders question the man, they question his parents, and then finally they question the man again. And this is the second part of the passage. The blind man testifies about his sight. 
The blind man testifies about his sight. So let's read verses 13 through 23, where they question the man and then his parents. So it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess to be Christ, Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogues. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the people bring the the formerly blind man to the Pharisees. They bring him to the Pharisees. Who were they? Well, they were a branch of Judaism, often seen kind of as the bastions of piety and purity because of their zealousness, not only for the Old Testament, but also for for the traditions that surrounded, that they had developed, these oral traditions and laws. For them, these traditions took on the same authority as the Old Testament. Okay, And Jesus and the Pharisees had many clashes because of this fact that they were elevating these traditions to the same level as the Old Testament. One such set of traditions was the Sabbath. Remember this? We saw this back in chapter 5, and it was an issue then. It's an issue that continues to come up, plays an important role here in our story, because Jesus healed the man, no doubt, probably intentionally, on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees thought that Jesus broke God's law. Is that the case? Let's talk for a minute about the Sabbath. Israel was to work six days, right? And then take one day off for rest. So the key question is, what exactly constituted itself as work? What was work? Well, if you look at the commandment itself, it's kind of open-ended. The Scripture forbids certain activities, gives several examples like farming, harvesting, conducting business transactions and so forth. But the Lord, He never gives this comprehensive list of what everything was included on the Sabbath. So some Jews felt like they needed to fill it out a little bit to elaborate what was constituted by work. By Jesus' day, in mainstream Judaism, this had developed more, but the Pharisees greatly elaborated what constituted a work act and what was considered not a work act. One writer says the intention is to leave nothing to chance, but by legislating for every circumstance 
to protect the faithful from ever breaking the prohibition on Sabbath work. So the intention may have been noble. No doubt surely was in some sense of sort of laying out everything so that you would know and not know whether that was Sabbath work or not. But the effect was a suffocation that destroyed the goal of the Sabbath. Because the goal of the Sabbath, friend, was rest and refreshment. Let me just give a few examples of numerous examples you could give of some of these rules that had become part of the traditions. You could not spit on the bare ground. You say, why? Well, it might disturb the dirt and be considered plowy. A woman was not to look at herself in a mirror. Why? She might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out. It's okay, you can laugh, it's all right. Or, if you took something in your hand and you threw it up in the air and you caught it with the same hand, that's okay, but if you threw it in the air and caught it with the other hand, that was work. So this and all kinds of other things went against really the heart of the Sabbath, which was to refresh and to rejuvenate God's people. They were now buried under this legalistic minutiae. The bottom line was that Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath by doing something mundane like spitting on the ground, especially if it was done to heal a person on the Sabbath. So keep this in mind as we go back to the story. After the Pharisees questioned the man, they debate among themselves whether Jesus really healed him. Some thought he could not perform a miracle since he broke the Sabbath, right? How could he perform a miracle if he's a Sabbath breaker? While others felt the other way, saying, look, he did a miracle. He can't be a sinner. And so they go round and round. They're debating this. They bring in the blind man and said, look, what do you think about this? The blind man says, look, he healed me, and I think he's a prophet. Of course, we've seen that a lot. Jesus is just a prophet. Verse 18 and following, the Jews doubt whether the, the man really was blind. You might say, well, hold up. I thought that some of them said there was a miracle. I think some time had elapsed by this. John is summarizing. Probably it was a long day there. And by this point, there seemed to be a consensus that there was not a healing that took place, that they were doubting this man. So then they bring in his parents. They've already got the neighbors. they already got the man but they bring it in the parents. Why? Because they want somehow to disregard this man's testimony. They hope the parents might contradict him somehow, but the parents come up and say, look, yes, this is our son, and yes, he was born blind, but they claim to know nothing of his healing. And say, you ask him yourself. Now in verse 22, I hope you caught that. John makes that very important parenthetical comment that the parents were afraid of being put out of the synagogue because they had already come about that if you were declaring Christ was Jesus was the Christ, you could be put out of the synagogue. And friends, this was a huge deal because the synagogue was not just the center of religious life for the community, it was the, the centerpiece of the entire community. This was huge. This was a major form of persecution to be kicked out of the synagogue like this. So sadly, the parents don't want anything to do with the situation. And in my book, 
I'm sure they knew what happened. So they lied about it. Because they didn't want to face the possible consequences. So that's the scene so far there, okay? So they've interviewed the man. They've interviewed his parents. Let's see now. They question the man again. Pick up with me if you'll verses 23 to 34. Excuse me, 24 to 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You know that God has spoken to, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So again, the Pharisees, I don't think they're really fact finding at this point. They're skeptical. They want to disprove the story. And more importantly, they want to discredit Jesus. And in verse 25, that man, he's, he's got some great lines here in this, in this second part of the interview. He says, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. What a great line. So much spiritual significance as we'll get to in a second. After asking how Jesus did it, the man has another great line and just kind of some comic relief in here too. He says, I told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Loaded with sarcasm, I think, in there. And at this point, the leaders revile him. I mean, they just kind of take the gloves off at this point, and they start going at him. They say, you're Jesus' disciples, but we're Moses' disciples. They know that God had spoken to Moses in the past, but they, they, don't even, they don't know where this man came from. And so then the man jumps in and again has a great line. He says, well, that's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. So the Pharisees were regarding themselves as these righteous, authoritative ones who were able to judge this matter. But it's amazing that Jesus performs this incredible sign, opening this man's eyes, and they don't even know where he's from. They were kind of looking bad at this point. And then verse 32, the man makes an important point. This was an extraordinary miracle. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Now, until this week, I've, I've obviously have read this passage many times before, but never really stopped to research it. Now, in the Old Testament, there are no recorded healings of a person born blind. Unless I'm wrong, come up to me after the service like some of you guys did last week. Keep me in line. That's fine. That's fine. We go by the word, not me. There are other healings, but not of a person born blind. At least not recorded. Perhaps there was, it's just not recorded. But the Old Testament does record that the Messiah, when he comes, he will heal the blind. When he begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, 
verse 18 to 19, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61.1, which of course was a prophecy that he applied to himself as the Messiah. And he says there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So healing the blind was a vital part of Jesus' ministry. If you want to write these down, here's some references. Matthew 9, 29-30, 12 22, 20, 30, and Mark 8.25 record the healings of six different individuals that Jesus heals who were blind. Matthew 5, excuse me, 15.30-31 share how great crowds came to Jesus bringing their sick, including the blind. Jesus healed them all. Matthew 21.14, the blind come to Jesus in the temple itself and Jesus heals them. And then in Matthew 11... John the Baptist, who's starting to have doubts here about Jesus being the Messiah, and he goes and sends some disciples to Jesus and says, are you really it, basically? In verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's right. Woo-hoo. That's right. And people were saying that when they were healed. Because it was told the Messiah would do this, and Jesus walked right into that as the Messiah fulfilled those things that were spoken to him. And so then going back to our story, the religious leaders, they still, sadly, they don't believe. And they denigrate the man. Saying he was born in utter sin, and then cast him out of the synagogue. Let's read the third part of the passage. Jesus gives the blind man spiritual sight. Jesus gives the blind man spiritual sight. Verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him, near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus hears of this man being cast out. I love how he goes to him. Isn't that neat? Goes to him. And ask if he believes in the Son of Man. Of course, that title comes from Daniel chapter 7. And that was Jesus' preferred way to speak about himself, the Son of Man. It's how he commonly referred to himself because it was kind of a cryptic, enigmatic, messianic designation. Jesus did not like to go around and just say, I'm the Messiah because of all of the loaded misconceptions as we've been seeing about him. Okay, about that title, Messiah. And so we ask him about the Son of Man. And the man doesn't know what he's talking about. In verse 38, the, and so Jesus explains that he's the Son of Man. And in verse 38, the man responds, says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Boom, you need to stop right there for a second. The man sees that he's not just a prophet. He is God in human flesh. Huge difference. 
an eternity of difference. You know, sometimes people need to stop and ask themselves, and here's a great litmus test, so to speak. How do you know if you are a Christian? How do you know if you are a Christian? A true Christian not only regards Jesus as a wonder worker and someone who's profound, but they worship him as God. Do you see the difference? So ask yourself, is your heart filled with worship to Jesus throughout your day or when we gather here on Sunday? Or is it always just kind of floating around and maybe you have a respect for Jesus? Hey, Thomas Jefferson greatly respected Jesus. But he did not see him as God. But when you come to know him, then your heart explodes with praise because you see that he isn't just a man, but he is God in human flesh. This man went from seeing him as prophet to the Son of God, and then he worshipped him. That is the key thing. Now, as the passage closes, Jesus kind of shifts the discussion. He uses physical sight and blindness as a metaphor for spiritual sight and blindness. And friends, this is really important because I think, in a sense, this is the overarching point of the whole passage. Again, back in verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Jesus' words are fascinating. Some people do not see, but they realize that they are living in spiritual darkness without Christ, then they truly see. They have to see that they're blind before they see the truth, right? Others think they can see without Christ, but they become spiritual, spiritually blind. And our example is a perfect, our, our passage is a perfect example of this principle. The man was physically blind and also spiritually blind, but he realized his need, right? And believed in Christ. The Pharisees, they thought they saw spiritually and they did not need Christ. They were content. They were satisfied with their own personal righteousness and good deeds. And that would be enough to please God. So they became blind to the truth of their need for Christ. And this is evident when they hear that conversation going on between Jesus and the blind man. They kind of look over and say, are we also blind? Kind of sarcastically to them. Jesus' final words again were, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So building off Jesus' previous statement, Jesus means that if you admit you're spiritually blind, you, will, you would have no guilt. Now in Greek, it literally means you would have no sin. Now, he's not saying, of course, that you have no sin at all, that you've never sinned, that you'll never sin anymore. He's not saying that. But he's saying, by admitting your need that you are a sinner, then you are in the place of receiving grace, and then all of your sin is wiped away. So that there's no more sin that remains because Jesus paid it all on the cross. Sadly, though, for those who do not seek Jesus, their guilt remains. Because they do not see and implicitly reject the only means of forgiveness that God has provided and stay in the place of judgment. 
Let me close out with kind of a spiritual vision test. A couple words of application. Friends, spiritual blindness is one of humanity's greatest weaknesses. We have deeply prideful hearts that do not like to admit our sin and to seek forgiveness from God. We don't like to see the obvious. And to make matters worse, the Bible says Satan blinds people spiritually to the truth of who Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You know, I look back to my life before Christ. I became a Christian when I was 21, and I was blind. Physically, I had 20-20 vision, but I was spiritually blind. I had no interest in God. It was amazing me going back to my old stomping grounds a couple years ago and driving around and being shocked. There were all these churches in the community. When I was there, I only knew of two churches. There was the big Catholic church where all my friends went, and then there was a church across the street from the high school where the kids who smoked hung out in the parking lot until just about the time when the bell rang, and then they would cross the street. But then I go back to my old hometown, and I see a church there, and a church here, and a church there, and I'm like, where did they all pop up after I left? No, they didn't. It's just I was different. And I saw them now. I had no interest in God. And many people are like that. Just look at it to see how many people fail to notice the countless blessings that we enjoy, regardless how bad your situation is. You can point to your life and see health or, or family or friends, possessions, Things in your life, yet people have these things, and yet all they focus on are the disappointments and frustrations in their lives. That's all they ever talk about. Or, people think so little of what happens when they die. Even though, last time I checked, it is a 100% certainty that that's going to happen to each and every one of us. I wasn't expecting that one there. But it's true if you're waiting for the Lord. Amen. But that's blindness, friends, isn't it? Or people know that they've done some things wrong in their life and God will judge those things, but they put it out of their minds because they think, well, if I just don't think about it, then it's never going to happen. Or they blame everyone else in their lives for the things that are wrong or the things that they have done wrong. They're apathetic. How can you be apathetic about this? Eternity hangs in the balance for people. Yet they will spend all of their times watching TV and movies and video games, surfing the net, sports, hobbies, texting, whatever. All of those things have their place. They're fine. 
but not to fritter away your life when eternity is hanging in the balance, friends. That is blindness. Or when they hear about Jesus, they're like the Pharisees. Always have an objection. Right? There's just always one more objection. Not really an open mind to hearing the message. Not really open to hearing about how Jesus has transformed literally hundreds of millions of people on the globe. And even their friends and neighbors and family will tell them, God has changed my life. Let me tell you about it. Oh, that's great. Let me go on back to this or that or the other. Spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Do you see why it is a plague to humanity? That you can hear about these things and be more concerned about how much snow is on your sidewalk right now. If these things are true of you, let me ask you to urge you to ask God to pull off the blinders and to believe in Christ, and He will do it. He will. He delights in doing that when we humble ourselves. Now, the thrust of this passage is primarily evangelistic. I think John tells the story so that the reader would be like the blind man who believed in Jesus. But I think there's also application to the Christian too. We may not be categorically spiritually blind, but if you're like me, you will still have blind spots. Maybe you had them before knowing Christ and they carried over into your Christian life, or maybe you've developed them since then, but Christians have blind spots. Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea that's well known for being what? Lukewarm. And among other things, Jesus tells them, you are blind and you need to repent. We can have blind spots about personal holiness, serving in the church, gathering for worship, sharing our faith and so forth. If you're sitting here today and you're struggling with personal holiness, but yet your mindset is, God knows, but He doesn't really care. Or God knows, and I can just go and ask for forgiveness. Or God knows, and it's not really affecting other people. What you have is a blind spot. You don't have some sort of okay that God is fine with. You have a blind spot. Or if you say, I'm so busy in my life right now, I don't have time to serve in the church and to use my gifts to build up the body of Christ. Or I'm too busy, I can't regularly gather for worship. You know what that is? That is a spiritual blind spot. I'm not saying, you know, once in a blue moon we get thrown out of a loop. I'm just saying there's a pattern of this. This is a blind spot in your life. You say, well, man, you're kind of preaching hard at me, aren't you? I'm trying, I'm trying. I say this out of love because we all have them. We all have them. And God wants us to do something about them. And I think the best way to do something about them is to take this Bible, not the Jefferson Bible, and to read it regularly, to regularly take in the Word of God so that you know what is God's will for my life, what does it mean to follow Christ. You don't think of these things on your own. You need the Word of God to be in your heart and mind. It will show you your blind spots. And then also, also ask God when you're praying about really, truly growing spiritually, He will reveal those blind spots. He will. Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24 says, 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you can cure both types of blindness. That you cured the physically blind, and Lord, you also cured the spiritually blind. I thank you that you helped me to see that I was blind like the man in the story, but now I see. And I know many others in this room would praise you because of the sight you have given them. And Lord, I pray for someone here today who has never seen that, Lord. That they think they see, but they actually don't see. I pray you would show them that here, even now in this moment, Lord. Help them to see that you're not just a great prophet, but you are God in human flesh. And that you deserve and that you summon people to come and worship you. And Lord, even today they would want to worship you because today is the day of salvation. And Lord, for your church here today, for those who have trusted you, whom you have ripped off the blinders, Lord, we still have those blind spots. And it's amazing how we fall into them. Lord, we pray today that you would seek us out just as you sought out the blind man in the temple. You would seek us out and come to us. And gently, as you are such a good shepherd, show us those things that we might serve you with greater love and devotion and to be a blessing to the church that your name might be lifted up and glorified. We ask this in the precious name of this great healer of the blind, physical and spiritual. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.